Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to take it out. Uh, we're going to take one more weekend here away from our Luke series. We'll jump back into that in Luke chapter 16, starting next Sunday. We're going to be in John chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, you want to open up to John chapter 17. In the last four or five years, we've used this Sunday in between Christmas and New Year in order to kind of stop and do a little bit of reflecting as it relates to kind of the Lord's working in my own life at times. We've used this Sunday to stop and pause and take a look at maybe what God seems to be doing in the larger church in America and just kind of stopping to address something that's more of a topic. So the first time we did this, we opened up a conversation about mental health, then um, the year following that, we talked about rest and Sabbath and how, you know, how God has graciously provided us a means by which we can not get crushed by kind of the grind of hustle culture in America. Last year, we used 1 Peter chapter 5 and we talked about sort of the, the fall of prominent or celebrity pastors in Christian culture and what it is that we're supposed to do with that as followers of Jesus. And this year, I want to take John 17, and I want to talk about unity, which is a topic that there has been just sort of a steady drumbeat about in American church life over the last two years or so. But what what I actually want to talk about is glory, and I'll show you what I mean by that here in a few minutes. Um, if you've got John 17 open there in front of you, just sort of look at it with me for a moment. It's, it's likely that your Bible breaks what is one recorded prayer from Jesus in the garden before his arrest and his crucifixion. But it's likely that your English translation of the Bible splits that into three parts. That's because Jesus's prayer has sort of three kinds of chunks. In the first five verses, he prays for himself. In the next chunk there from verse 16 down to verse 19, he prays for his disciples, the 12. And then starting in verse 20, he says, I pray not only for these, those would be his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word. And one of the remarkable things about John chapter 17 is that Jesus there is praying for the church collectively, those who would come to believe the truth of who Jesus Christ is through the word of the apostles and the disciples. And what's remarkable when we read this passage and this prayer from Jesus in John 17, you're reading something that Jesus prayed for you. We're reading something that Jesus prayed for the church as it would flow from the mouth of the disciples. The proclamation of the gospel would go from the mouth of the disciples into the early church there in Jerusalem. It would go from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth and Jesus is praying for everyone who would come to faith on the heels of that. And that would include believers in Japan, believers in Western Asia, believers in East and West Europe, believers in Africa, believers in South America, and in this church here in suburban Kansas City today. I'm gonna read that last portion, which is uh, starting in verse 20 and works through verse 26. This is Jesus praying moments before he's arrested. He prays this, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, 
as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. Let's pray. God, thank you for the sending of your son and the opportunity to pause, rejoice, and reflect upon your goodness to us in the sending of Jesus into the world. God, thank you that you would display your love for your people in the sending of your son to the cross in our place. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that while Jesus was here on this earth, he would see fit to pray for us today. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the truth of these words and just kind of light them up in our hearts this morning. God, we as a local church, we do want to be unified. We, as a tiny fraction of the global church, God. We want to walk in unity with our brothers and sisters as Jesus prays here. But so often, God, our own flesh and our own sin stops us from that. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move through your word and would move through your people. God, would you humble us to receive the truth of your word? Would you humble us to receive conviction from the Spirit? Would you humble us to submit? God, would you humble us that we might be molded into the image of Christ and that we might be one so that the world would know that you sent your Son? God, we need your spirit in order for any of that to be true. And so we pray for you to move mightily among us this morning in the name of Jesus, amen. We'll step through this whole prayer in a moment, um, but we need to lay some groundwork before that. So actually how we're going to do this this morning is that I'm going to define a couple of terms for us. Um, words we use all the time that we just kind of throw around in Christian circles. I'm going to apply some definitions to those so that we can walk through this prayer, then see the outworking of this prayer in action in the early church, and then ask ourselves the question, what does that mean for us today? And this is the landing point this morning, that the church is to be a vehicle for God's glory in God's world. That's a capital C church. That's true of all God's global people. It's also true of every local expression of that, every local church. So I said I wanted to start with defining some terms. And the two words that we need to sort of get our minds around this morning are the words holiness and glory. We've defined holiness before. 
I'm gonna give you the definition again. When we talk about God being holy, we're talking about his otherness, that he's set apart and he's distinct from anything else in all of creation, from anything else in all of our human experience. God is holy. He's different and other and set apart. Creation is an expression of who God is. It's an expression of his love. Humanity, we're told, is made in God's image, but God is holy. He's other. He's set apart. He's different from every aspect of his creation, and he's different than humanity. He's perfect in a way that is set apart from everything else. He's beautiful in a way that's set apart from everything else. He is gracious and merciful and righteous and just and good and kind and omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent and patient and loving in ways that are totally set apart from anything else in all of creation. The word we use to talk about that set apartness is the word holy. And yet what is so almost unfathomable about a God who is different and distinct and set apart in this kind of way is that he would choose in the son to come and be with us. That's the, that's the miracle and wonder of Christmas is that this God who is so distinct and so other and so unlike everything else and everything that he's created would put on flesh and come be with us. That's remarkable and actually is part of what makes him holy and different and distinct. The second word is the word glory. We use that word a lot around here. We use that word a lot around here because the Bible uses that word a lot. But I'm not sure we've ever actually attempted to define what we mean by the word glory. When you're just reading particularly in the Old Testament, and you come across the word glory, the word that you're reading there carries the connotation of like weight. That when the Bible talks about God being holy and being glorious, it's talking about the fact that in his otherness, there's this like weightiness to who he is. It's like God is heavy almost, so to speak. And that that glory is something that you can like feel and experience whenever you have an interaction with who God is. But we use the word glory about all sorts of stuff that isn't the weightiness of who God is. We talk about glory when we talk about like creation, that creation declares the glory of who God is. And so we talk about sunsets being glorious and mountains being glorious. And we talk about ocean tides being glorious and teeny tiny bugs or microscopic sails or cells or giant blue whales, that all of those are a picture of the glory of God. Are we just saying that like teeny tiny cells are heavy? We're just talking about weightiness when we talk about that. What do we mean when we say those things? There's a passage in Isaiah chapter six. Isaiah is being called as a prophet he gets this brief peek into the throne room of God. And the only real language that Isaiah can apply to it is that he describes it like it's this temple and that the Lord's robe fills the temple and that there are heavenly beings that surround him in this place and the doorways shake when these beings speak and everything is like filled with smoke and the whole thing is awesome and terrifying and Isaiah is like grasping for words about it. And then he records what he hears these heavenly beings saying. And they say, holy, 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 other, other, 
other is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Not his holiness. Holy, 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 other, other, other is the Lord of armies. It is his glory that fills the whole earth. It's interesting that the angels describe God as being other and distinct and set apart, but they don't say that the earth is filled with his holiness. They say that his glory is what fills the earth. In his book, Providence, John Piper reflects on this and he says the following, that the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness. It's the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his holiness on display for people to understand. So the glory of God is the holiness of God made manifest. So what are we talking about when we talk about glory? We're talking about the visible reality of God's holiness or to put both of our definitions together, we're talking about God's otherness made visible. To talk about the glory of God is to talk about his distinct otherness put on display for human eyes to see. So when we talk about the glory of Jesus, which is something we talk about a lot around here, we're talking about the holiness of God on display in the sinless perfection of his son. When we talk about the glory of the gospel, we're talking about the otherness of God put on display in the sending of the son to die in place of sinners. That there is something visible about the otherness of God in the gospel. When we talk about the glory of God as seen in creation, we're talking about the holiness of God on display in the complex world that he created as an expression of himself and as an expression of his love. When we talk about the glory of sunrises or butterflies or jaguars, what we're saying is that you can see something about the distinct otherness of God in the things that he has created. It's maybe never been on display, that idea more for me than one time in college, our track team the winter before had placed well at the Big 12 championships. And so we got introduced at halftime of a football game while Mizzou was playing against Oklahoma. And we went out on the field in the end zone and they introduced everybody that had been a part of that team. And then we were walking back through the tunnel as Oklahoma's football team was coming out. I'm a small human being on the scale of things. And walking past me, I can't remember his first name, but he played in the NFL. His last name, he's an offensive lineman, last name, Lodeholt. And yes, that guy. For a brief moment, I was so shocked by the size of something that's supposedly the same species as I am (laughs) that I stopped in the tunnel and this man all like 300 some pounds of him and me are looking at each other thinking, how is it possible that we're the same thing? (laughs) But there's something about the holiness and the otherness of God on display in the vastness of his creation. When we talk about the glory of creation, we're saying that when you look at everything that's around, even if you just look at the faces in this room, you see something about how magnificent and just other God is. Holiness, God others, God's otherness, glory, that otherness made visible. You're asking yourself, Tim, what in the world does that have to do 
with the thing you said you were going to talk about. We'll go back to our main point. The church is to be a vehicle for God's glory in God's world, which would be to say that the church is supposed to be a place where the otherness of God is made visible in the world that God created. If you've got John 17 open there, Jesus prays about glory eight different times in this prayer. I'm gonna walk through them somewhat briefly. Verse two is the first time it shows up. I'm sorry, uh, verse one is the first time it shows up. Jesus is praying about himself. Father, the hour has come, glorify your son. Father, the hour has come, make visible your holiness through the son. Why? So that the son, look at this, might glorify you. Jesus prays, God, Father, the hour has come, glorify me so that I might glorify you. Make your holiness evident in me so that I might make your holiness evident. That's what Jesus is praying. Verse four, Jesus prays about his ministry. I have glorified you. I have made your holiness visible on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. That's the third one. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence. Bring me back to you. Make evident your otherness with the glory that I had before the world existed. I've always made your glory visible. Bring me back into your presence with that glory. Jesus prays all that about himself. It's incredible. Then he prays for his disciples. Look at verse 10. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them, the disciples. So, Father, everything that I have is yours and everything that you have is mine. That's true because they exist in perfect eternal relationship. And Jesus is saying, something about your holiness is made visible in these 12 wildly broken individuals that I've called to myself. Peter, with all of his foot-in-mouth moments, There's something about the holiness of God made visible, even in that guy, Jesus says. Why? Well, because Father, everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine and you've given me these people. And so my holiness is made visible through them. And then Jesus prays for believers going forward. The church, capital C, through all time. Start with me in verse 21. This is what gets top billing in the prayer, rightfully so. May they be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in them. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Unity, that's what Jesus is praying for. Now watch the next sentence. I have given them the glory you have given me. Why? So that they may be one. Did you catch that? Jesus has given to his church through all time, in all places, all the people who would be gathered together as God's children. He's given them, us, his glory so that we might be one. 
why is it that God would give his people of his own visible expression of his holiness so that we would be unified? What comes first? The giving of the glory comes before the unity. It's actually the giving of the glory that makes the unity possible. And then Jesus prays in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so that they will see my glory. I mean, think about that. Jesus is praying that one day you would go to be with him so that you could see the fullness of his holiness on display for all of eternity. He's praying that for you. I mean, it's so wonderful. It's unthinkable. Eight different times. Jesus prays about glory, that the otherness of God would be on display in his death, that the otherness of God has been on display in his work on earth, that the otherness of God would be on display in the presence of the Trinity there as it has been for all of eternity, that the otherness of God would be on display in the disciples as they walk forward and in the church as he empowers it, and then one day when the church is collected back to himself. John 17. It's a prayer about a lot of things. It's definitely a prayer about glory. Now just kind of walk with me quickly, mentally here. If you were to flip not very far in your Bible, just to Acts chapter two, Jesus has been crucified, he's buried, he's resurrected, and he ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We get a narrative description of the early church. And we're often wowed by this description. Like, oh, just think about how great it would have been to have been part of that early church. We're told that this is what they were like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Suddenly, more or less instantly, after Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost, this group of people looks like something so wonderful and so beautiful that it captures the attention and the respect of everyone, we're told. These are people like we're people. Like they're human and subject to all the limitations and frailties and fallenness of humanity in the same way that we are. And so think about that. It's both Jews and Gentiles. It's various nationalities. They're people who are sinful and broken in the same ways we are. This is a group of people made up of individuals who are selfish and greedy and prideful and self-centered. They're busy and they're stressed and that's the picture you get of them. Well, think about what Jesus just prayed for the church. Holiness on display in unity for the world to see. And look at what happens in Acts chapter two. And then you get a few days or a few decades later, and Paul he's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. He writes this: Listen for our, our word again. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray, this is Paul praying for the church, 
that he may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width, the height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church. That's what Paul's praying. Two times in there, that the riches of God's glory, the riches of the visible reality of God's otherness would bring God's people strength and power. That's the first time. That as the Holy Spirit indwells us, the visible display of his holiness would be at work in the individual lives of his people. And then at the end of the prayer, he prayed God's glory would be evident in the church. That would be to say that the visible display of God's holiness, his otherness, would be evident through the collection of his people living life alongside one another in a broken world. Jesus prays for it. The early church gets this sliver of a taste of it. Paul is praying for it a few decades later. The church is supposed to provide a place where the visible display of the perfections of God's complete otherness would be visible in the world. When we talk about glory, we talk about the glory of Jesus, the Son. We talk about the glory of the cross. We talk about the glory of salvation. We talk about the work of the Holy Spirit and the lives of believers and that being glorious. We talk about answers to prayer being glorious. We talk about sunsets and ocean tides and mountain peaks being glorious. What else is supposed to be on that list? The church. And so the understandable question at this point is, why this topic right now? One of the common drumbeats and refrains throughout the capital C church, particularly in American society over the last couple of years has been this cry for unity. And I agree. That's a wonderful thing to call people toward. It's biblical to call people toward unity. Right in our passage today, Jesus prays that his people would be one as he and the Father are one. And yet here's the challenge with that. If a pastor just stands here and makes a plea or a cry or a demand for unity, or if someone gets on social media or on YouTube or whatever the case might be and they demand unity and they say, just fix it, be unified. Is that how sanctification works in any area of your life? That somebody just gets up and tells you to make it work? Do it better? Fix it for yourself? That's not how sanctification works anywhere in our lives. And I can say this because I've been this person. And so this is as much confession as it is statement of truth. But more than likely, the person screaming for unity is actually making a not so subtle demand that everyone who thinks differently just get on my page. Unity. Now let me tell you what that needs to look like from my perspective. And where you're different, you're wrong. So get on board or else you're in sin. Like that is the subtle implication of the demands for unity at times is that you either agree with me or you're the one in disunity and therefore you're the one that's in sin. Father, forgive me for the times that I have done exactly that. 
And so in order to have any conversation about God's holiness on display through his church and the glory of God evident through the collection of his people in the world that he's created, we've got to start with a conversation about holiness, individual sanctification. Because the reality is this, that there is no personal holiness without changes of appetite. In all matters of sanctification, and, and that word simply means in all matters of growing into Christ-likeness, we need the Holy Spirit to help us crave something different. We need the presence of God through the Spirit of God to help us long for things that Jesus longs for. And until our cravings and our appetites match his, our behaviors stand no chance. You've got a lust, pornography issue. Me getting up here and saying, hey, don't do that. This never fixes the problem. You have the festering pit of like, greed and covetousness that exists inside of you. You don't need your small group leader to just say, hey, well, don't, don't hoard your stuff and stop checking your bank account. That's never gonna fix the issue. If you're commonly given to gossip, you need more than a simple, hey, the Bible says don't do that in order to actually fix the problem. At best, those types of comments and statements breed legalists. And that's like the best thing that could come out of that would be someone who just follows the rules and thinks that by following the rules, they've saved themselves. We need the Holy Spirit to actually dig out the root of the problem, not someone screaming to just do a couple things in order to chop off the flowering portion at the top. We need something deeper. We need a new appetite an appetite that craves the glory of God in and through the people of God. That's one of the Holy Spirit's chief aims in the life of a believer, is to just get inside of you and rearrange all of your mixed up appetites, all of your wayward loves. We grow in holiness as the Holy Spirit helps us crave something other than what our sinful flesh craves. Throughout Christian history, that idea has been talked about in relation to what's often named religious affections. We need our loves changed. So if the cravings and appetites doesn't really strike a chord for you, think in terms of the stuff that you love. In our sin, we love stuff that's opposed to God's holiness. It's opposed to his word. It's opposed to his commands. But most importantly, our sin is opposed to the holiness. It's an affront to the holiness, the otherness of who God is. So in order to grow in our likeness to Christ, we need to have those loves changed. We need for the Holy Spirit to make us increasingly love the things of God rather than the things of sin and brokenness and worldliness in our flesh. Yes, absolutely, we exercise the muscle of obedience. Sometimes we just need to hear the command and be obedient to the command. But without a change in appetite, brute strength obedience is only going to carry you so far. If we could just muster up the ability to change our behavior into the way of holiness, there would have been no need for the Son to come and no need for the Spirit to be present among his people. But we can't. And so God has graciously provided his Son and graciously given us the Spirit. And so there's no personal holiness without a change of appetite. And the same is true when we talk about unity. There's no unity without a change of appetite. The calls for unity are fantastic. There will be no true glory shining through the church without it. 
But just making statements on social media or yelling from pulpits, that's never going to be the answer. Our cravings have to be completely rearranged in this category. We need the Holy Spirit to attack our pride and lessen our desire to just be right. We need the Holy Spirit to quench our flesh's often vindictive thirst for sticking it to those who think differently than us. We need the Holy Spirit to make us long for something better than another gluttonous or voyeuristic round of our preferred talking heads, takes, and opinions. We need to be awakened to our ego-stroking tendencies to seek out pastors or voices who agree with our side and do a great flesh-satisfying job of blasting the other one. And more than this is an issue of behavioral change within us, brothers and sisters, this is an issue of prayer. It's an issue of petition. It's an issue of sanctification inside of each and every one of us. What we need more than someone telling us to just get in line and be unified is that we need to get on our knees in quiet with the Lord and make deep prayers that are about more than health or more than job situations, more than relational struggles that we might have. Those are great things. Absolutely pray for those things. But when you get silent before the Lord, cry out for him to change you. That's where holiness comes from. We get before the Lord and we say, God, this is broken inside of me. And I need your spirit. Unity is going to come from that place in the life of the church. We say to ourselves, there is this sick thing inside of me, God. That actually kind of, sort of, enjoys the polarization of our society. That's how our world is set up. That's the way that your algorithms literally work. Oh, you liked this particular thing? I'll bet you like this one that's a little bit further. Oh, you watched four and a half minutes of this video? Here's one that's a little more extreme. Pretty soon you're like nine YouTube videos deep and you can't really remember where you even started. But you're watching it thinking, how did I get here? We can all name which news stations represent which side. We can typically name which denominations. Our pastors, our social media accounts tend to agree with our preferred positions and stances. People and organizations literally build platforms banking on audiences not only identifying their position, but following them because of it. And here we are in the church just telling people to be unified. When most of us, I say most of us because I'm in the group. Like most of us actually crave the polarization that exists in our world. We pump the division into our social media universe. We feed the ratings on television. We have conversations about it with one another. And we do so in a manner that has very little difference from the rest of the world. We do so about topics that have very little, if any, bearing on the gospel. And all the while, we give lip service to the idea of Christian unity while simultaneously viewing and participating and feeding the division economy that currently fuels the American marketplace of entertainment 
and idea exchange. And then we act shocked that the church would match the rest of society. Like, how'd this happen? It's not supposed to be this way. And the only way it won't be that way is if your appetite gets totally rearranged. My appetite gets totally rearranged. And God does that within the life of his people a million, billion times over and makes it so that we as the people of God would crave the display of God's otherness in and through us more than we would crave satisfying like on social media the sharing of a particular voice because they really stick it to this person I don't like. And that's hard. And it hurts. But glory through the church comes only as the Holy Spirit changes our appetites. This unity that Jesus prays for is a byproduct of God's collected people craving the display of his holiness, his otherness more than anything else. Why would the early church behave like they did? They had their appetites, their affections completely rewired. And the result was this beautiful display of God's otherness for the world to see. Jesus prayed, make them one so that the world may believe that you sent me. I've given them the glory so that they might be one. Acts chapter two, their numbers being added to daily. Their behaviors look totally other from normal human behavior because there's something about the beauty and the otherness of who God is on display through those people. And just like Jesus prayed, that glory is drawing people. How do we actually do that? Well, I already gave one. The first is pray. And the prayer cannot be God, those other people. Help them get this right. That can't be the prayer. The prayer has to be much more like the tax collector standing in the temple, beating his chest, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because there's something sick and twisted inside of me that likes the polarization as much as the next person. But you've got something better. Rearrange my appetite fix my affections. And then, as if getting to the point where we're willing to genuinely pray that, not just offer lip service to it like Pharisees, but genuinely pray that as if that's not hard enough, then we've got to also allow the Holy Spirit to do the hard work of helping us submit. Like when the Holy Spirit shows up in answer to that prayer, you've got to do the nitty gritty, everyday sort of behavior of submission of asking yourself, what am I watching and why? Is it good for my soul? Is it good for my sanctification? Does this help me love my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ more? Does this help me love a broken world more? If the answer is no and the Holy Spirit surfaces that answer, click, like turn it off. It's, It's not the best thing for your soul in light of eternity and it's definitely not the best thing for the display of God's otherness in the world that he created. If you're a social media user, what are you sharing and why are you sharing it? What's the craving there? Like if I pump this thing out there into the world, is this helping my brothers and sisters in Christ love God more and crave his holiness and his glory more? Is this 
potentially fostering a wedge between me and, and someone else. And I will be the first one to admit that I'm far from perfect here. And so these prayers for God to do this work and for submission, this is straight out of my own life. We've got to be willing to submit when the Holy Spirit shows up and convicts us about our engagement with the issues of the day. We don't have to agree on everything. Unity is not uniformity. There will be difference of opinion when it comes to the issues of a day in any society, in any culture, at any time, in any place in the world. But what is your tone of engagement in that? What's your demeanor in that? What's your goal in that? Is there something about God's holiness on display even in your disagreement? And when the Holy Spirit shows up and says, uh, no, we've got to be willing to submit to that prompting from the Spirit. The church is to be a vehicle for God's glory in God's world. The church is to be a vehicle for the visible display of the holiness of God in the world that God created. And to land us in Jesus's prayer, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. Brothers and sisters, would we crave that glory, that unity would be the result that God's children ushered into the kingdom would be the ripple effect. Amen? Amen. Um, grab your communion cup there. You, you got that when you came in.